0: Please join me in John chapter 18, John 18. Easter is four weeks away. And as I prayed about what should we do, we finished up our upper room discourse. I felt led by God to keep us in the gospel of John, to leave that upper room, go into the garden, on the way to the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection together as we just continue walking through John's gospel. And then even the weeks after, We'll continue as we look toward Jesus' ascension to heaven. But this is so rich and such a great time for us because we've, for the last several months, we've been thinking on Christ and we've been seeing his mindset in there in the upper room and all that was on his mind as he gave himself. And so it just seemed right we'd walk through this together because we're seeing together that he fully embraced the plan to come and to save us. You know, sometimes we have responsibilities that come our way and we're maybe not so willing to follow the responsibility. I remember when Joy and I were early married, we got married when I was 20 years old, still in college. I knew I had seminary to go after college, but we we can't wait till all the education's done. That's going to be forever. So we went ahead and got married in college. And uh, being married in college as a 20-year-old guy, I became the man of the house. And I kind of like the sound of that. I get to be the leader of our little family. But with that came some responsibilities that initially I realized, oh, I hadn't counted the cost on that. So used to, when things happened when I was growing up, my stepfather, Kenneth, he would handle things. Now it's to me. First thing that comes to mind was the time we had a mouse in the house. In our little garage apartment where where Joy and I first lived, there was a mouse. Joy was sleeping that night. I was up studying late, and I hear a rustling in the kitchen, and I go to see what's going on. And I see this little cute mouse pop up his head from behind our trash can. Pop down, pop up. He's just looking at me. I'm checking him out. But then it's on me like, oh, I have to deal with this. Kenneth's not here. He's four hours away. This is my family. And so the next day, buying the traps and setting the traps, I realize that's not so easy. These things are trigger happy. They're like very sensitive. Trying to put cheese or peanut butter on that thing. But once you get it set to try to slide it into place, any bump in the floor, it goes off. So just terror over and over again. But (laughs) you you probably saw it on the news. I solved the mouse crisis of 1987. Man of the house, task one, done. But then it came a bigger one. It was when I had to assume the role as protector of our little family of two. And so this is the occasion... Joy and I left for a day to be away visiting family, came back that night. Listen, there was a light on in our little garage apartment. So I thought somebody has been in there. Very possibly they're still in there. And so I thought, what are my options? I don't want to go in there, but I thought um, I could call the police And then I thought, well, what if it's nothing? And I've called the police for nothing. That's going to be humiliating. I thought about calling my buddies who were still on campus. I thought I could call the guys and they could come in with me. But if this is nothing, I'll never be able to live that down. So it was on me. So I go in, Joy's behind me, and we check every room. Not that many rooms, but we checked every room. And uh, we did have two closets. I checked the closets. Listen, how thorough. Checked under the beds. Make sure they're not hiding under there. Finally, got to our bathroom and there was the shower curtain. It was closed. And I thought, okay. This is the moment cuz if they're here they're behind the curtain and I hope I hope this looks as impressive as I hope it looked that day. Here was the move. I come to that curtain and one motion, pull the curtain back, punch in there. <laughs> Punched air. There's nobody in there. Apparently, we left a lamp on when we left that morning. And didn't notice it. And then at night when we got in, there's a light on. It was all, all for nothing. Well, here's, here's bonus material. I didn't even have this in my notes. Another occasion where I did not initially want to step up to my responsibility. It was when there was a spider uh, outside of our front door of our little garage apartment. And uh, he was the biggest spider I'd seen up to that point in my life. He had substance to his he had body to him and legs. And he's hanging there suspended. This was the problem. He was hanging from an awning to the bushes there. And he's suspended. And, and so we, I found a rock. We got to kill it. And I was so timid. I was so hesitant about how do I, I have nothing to press him against. Joy said, do you want me to kill it? <laughs> and I said, would you? <laughs> and she did. She picked up the rock, knocked it down, killed it on the ground. Thought, oh, that's brilliant. You know, you, you took care of it. So my point is, I have not always willingly stepped up to my responsibilities. And here we come to Jesus He's in the upper room. He's now stepping out of it. And we're going to see him over and over again. He's stepping toward this responsibility. He knows who he is. He's the the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And he doesn't flinch. He just keeps moving to the cross. And we're good to see him together in that. So our text is John 18. But before we leave the upper room into the garden, we're told by Matthew and Mark That he and the disciples, they sang a song before they left the upper room. Here's what Matthew said. He says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. But now let's hear John as he tells it. John 18, let's start with verses 1 through 4. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward and said, whom do you seek? The first thing I want us to notice together is this. Jesus does not flee. Jesus does not flee. He goes to the usual place where he would go with his disciples, the place where he knew Judas would know where he was going to be. In fact, Luke says it this way in Luke 22, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Here, this place on the Mount of Olives, we're told is Gethsemane by both Matthew and Mark. So if you knew somebody was wanting to kill you, not a rumor, you knew it was going to happen, what would you do? You, if you're like me, you'd get out of town. Like if I knew there was some plot to kill me, I'd say, hey guys, I will see you when this cools down. I'd be getting out of town. Police will tell you if somebody has made a threat to you, they'll tell you, listen, why don't you alter your comings and your goings? Why don't you mix up the schedule? Don't arrive and depart at the same time. Park in different places. But here's Jesus. He's not altering his routine. He's not leaving the area. He came to Jerusalem for this very purpose. He goes exactly to the spot that he knew his betrayer would be betraying him with all these people coming with him. Now, while John in his gospel goes straight to the arrest and the trial, I want us to pause here first because the other gospel writers are going to tell us, but they actually had a time of prayer. Jesus specifically had a time of prayer before the arrest. So hear this with me. This is Luke twenty-two forty. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We just left the upper room where Jesus prayed that high priestly prayer for his disciples and for us. Now he's in the garden. What does he do? He is praying here. And we see him praying with er uh, fervency, earnestly, even with agony here. It's not that Jesus is reluctant to carry out the plan of God. Remember, this is the plan of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the plan for the Son to come and give his life. So he's not reluctant to that. But Jesus expresses to the Father his aversion to the ugliness of all he's about to endure. To take the sin of the world upon his righteous self. To experience what's coming on the cross, to experience the wrath of God, to take the judgment that you and I deserve, Jesus anticipates he's gonna take that. Yes, he's going to experience abuse and torture and an agonizing death on a cross. He's going to receive instead of the glory and worship that he's due, he's going to experience humiliation and rejection and death. But again, never a question that he would follow through with it. Just the repulsion about what was about to happen. There's no other way Jesus steps toward it. And notice how he yields himself to this plan. Nevertheless, he says, not my will but yours be done. So let's consider that. Let's meditate on that a bit more. Jesus had in mind that spiritual agony that's about to be his. The sin and guilt of the entire world for all of time, he's going to take that upon himself and die for us. It's amazing what he was willing to do. One writer wrote this so well, I just wanna bring this to you. One writer said this, in Gethsemane, Jesus made the revolting choice to drink the cup of wrath he did not deserve. The light of the world consented to be extinguished into the deepest darkness. Christ, our life, stepped into the waters of death and forsakenness in order that we might pass over them as safely as passing through dry land. Our innocent Passover lamb gave himself to be sacrificed for us, the sinless one classed to himself the contradiction of being made sin. He entered fully the olive press of Gethsemane. He continues writing this way. We are so jaded and compromised that we can hardly imagine such a conflict with sin in our person. We're used to being sinful. But Jesus would have shrunk in horror from the cup of heart venom, the soul slime of humanity he was asked to drink. While all his days he lived for his father's will, now the divine will demanded that he become what he and his father both hated. As Paul writes, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's Jesus willing to do this for us, to take our horrendous sin upon himself, to die for it, to atone for it. Do you see the submission of Jesus here? What a great example for us. So Jesus is the Lord. And if Jesus, our Lord, could pray this way, yielding to the Father, how much more should you and I pray this way? So his will over our will every time. This is how you and I should pray. It's how you and I should live. We trust him. We follow him, even when following him is not immediately enjoyable, So for Jesus to be your Lord means you abide in this mindset, not my will, but yours be done. So let me ask you this. Have you placed any limitations on your obedience to the Lord? When God's will and your will clash, who yields? Can I remind you, God never yields. When God's call on your life involves sacrifice, do you tune out? Do you assume, well, that can't be God's will because he wouldn't ask me to actually hurt or to give up something. Now, I've met people who sometimes think, well, God's will is always harsh. And so if if there's something good here and there's something hard and it's harsh, then God's will is always harsh. It's not true. God can lead you into delightful things as well. So don't assume because it's the hardest, worst thing, that's God's will. But I've met more people that when it's a hard thing, they just assume, well, it can't be that because God wants me comfortable and happy at all times. Years ago, when we were preparing to go overseas to serve, we spoke in a few churches on our way to training here in town. And I remember after one of the times we spoke and talked about where we were serving, uh, one of the ladies came up to Joy and said this to her. said, um, I'm jealous of you. Joy was taken aback by that, like jealous of me? Did you not hear where we're going? And Joy and I were counting the cost how hard this was going to be. It's certainly beyond us. And then the lady continued. She said, I'm jealous of you because you're willing to go and I'm not. And we had a chance to process that. Just think through, what does that mean to be a believer and say, I'm not willing to do whatever the Lord have us do. Listen, we have to abide in this mindset. Lord, not my will but yours be done, you are in full control. So we consider this example of Jesus submitting to the Father. If Jesus submits like that, how much more should you and I do that? But here, let's come back to this though. Would you see with me dominantly, do you hear the love of Jesus for us again? There's no love like this. He came to give his life for us. So trust in this savior. If you've yet to trust in Jesus today, you've been hearing about his love, you hear about his worthiness, his holiness, your move today is to recognize that Jesus is that awesome that he came to give his life to cover your sins. He was raised from the dead. Your move, even now, we're not even done with the sermon, but would you trust in Jesus right now? We're looking at Jesus here. He left the upper room. He goes into the garden. He did not flee. See with me next. Jesus did not fear. Jesus did not fear. Instead, he acts with authority. Look at verse three again. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Notice here, there is an arresting party. It's not just Judas betraying. He led a group of people there, soldiers, and we're told they brought weapons. So we have Roman soldiers there. And some have said if it was a whole cohort of soldiers, that would be 600 Roman soldiers along with temple guards and others. Some say, well, it's unlikely they would have sent an entire cohort. So maybe one unit of that cohort, it could have been as many as 200 Roman soldiers there. But whether it's 600 or 200 or even merely 20 soldiers plus temple guards, notice Jesus is not afraid of that moment. He came for this. I love verse 4. Knowing everything that's about to happen to him, the scripture says he came forward. Jesus did not shrink in that moment. You ever had times in your life where the moment felt too big for you? I've had moments like that. I'd like to tell you that I never get scared and I never feel like a moment's too big for me, but I've had moments like that where I anticipated and I thought, oh, I think this will be fine. I can do this. Christ in me. I can do this. And I'll still get in that moment. And I think, whew, I got to remind myself to breathe. I, why am I so scared? And I have to, to rebuke myself and walk through it. Listen, it's not, not just me. I got to meet some of our government officials in Virginia a few weeks ago, and I've told you some stories about that already. But one, one of the things that inspired me was one of the ladies who who was there, one of our uh, godly uh, legislators. She, uh, she talked about how God called her to run for office. And then she talked about how that first campaign event, she said she got in her car to drive the three hours of that event. She said, I got in my car and I was shaking. And she thought, Lord, you've called me. How can I run for office if I'm this scared at the very beginning? She said, this is what I did though. In that three hour drive, I just worshiped the Lord. I worshiped for three hours. She said, I was a very different woman getting out of the car than I was getting in the car. God gave her courage as she spent those three hours worshiping him. But here's Jesus. He did not have to work up his courage like you and I have to do sometimes to rebuke ourselves, remind ourselves who he is and why we don't need to be afraid. Jesus knew who he was. He's not fleeing and he's not afraid. He's stepping toward this. There is his betrayer. We're told by Matthew, Mark and Luke that Judas kissed him as the signal to those arresting him. But notice here, Jesus asks the questions there in the garden and the people are answering him. Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Did you notice that? How did Jesus describe himself? He said, it's literally two words in the Greek language, ego, I, me, I am. It's a statement of his deity He's using the same phrase that God the Father used in Exodus 3 to Moses. It's the same way Jesus spoke in John eight fifty eight. He says, I am. So here's Jesus, indeed, God in the flesh. He is the word that John has talked about in his gospel. He is the I am. Jesus told the truth about himself. He's hiding nothing about his identity now. Years ago, I was walking a street in India, and a car pulled up beside me, and the guy said, excuse me, where are you from? I know being an American abroad, maybe that's not a popular thing all the time. And so I thought for a second, I thought, well, I'll just tell the truth. He says, where are you from? I said, I'm from America. The guy said, good, we hate the British. And he drove off. (laughs) And I thought, whew, I'm glad I didn't fake a British accent to try to get out of that situation. But here's Jesus, not hiding anything declares who he is. Notice here, even shields his disciples. Verse seven. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. See him shielding like a good shepherd, shielding his disciples. And see his authority here. He's commanding them not to touch his disciples. He's not requesting it. He's not pleading with them. So see with me, it was not the disciples time to be arrested. There'll be time years later when for these disciples, they will be arrested. And most of them will be martyred for Christ, but not this day. So good reminder for us. Nobody can touch you until it's God's time for you. Nobody can take your life. The world doesn't control your fate. The world doesn't control your life. You'll be here serving Him until it's time for you. And then God will permit you to go to heaven by whatever means He chooses to. So this reminds us you and I can be fearless in the will of God as we serve Him. Even in a hostile culture, let's be bold. So here's Jesus. He does not flee. In the garden, He does not fear. And see with me this Jesus does not fight. He doesn't fight. Jesus doesn't fight off this band of soldiers. He doesn't flinch here. He gives himself. He's not taken. Look at verse 10 again. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And this is one of those old Peter moments. Peter, this is impressive and foolish all at the same time. What an impulsive move. And we have no idea what was going through Peter's mind here. Why would you do that? You've got Roman soldiers, temple guards, this this group of people, and you're going to draw a sword and start a fight. I, I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he thought, listen, it's just the right thing to do to defend Jesus. Maybe he thought, I know Jesus' power. I'll, I'll get this thing started and he'll end it and we're good here. We, we don't know what he was thinking. But we know this, Peter was not bluffing here. In fact, many people said through the years, Peter was not aiming for an ear. He's aiming for, aiming for the guy's head. All he got was an ear there. And so it was a wrong idea. The Lord was not at all pleased. We can almost admire him a little bit like, wow, he's gutsy but it was foolish, it was sinful, it, it was wrong. Remember, Jesus had to rebuke Peter for a similar type of attitude even earlier. Back in Matthew 16, when Jesus was talking about the plan of going to Jerusalem and suffering, all that, Peter didn't like it. He says, not you, it's not gonna happen to you. And remember, Jesus said this, get behind me, Satan. One of the most famous rebukes in all the Bible was to Peter for the same mentality. My savior's not gonna suffer. I mean, that's not how this is gonna go. Matthew 16, 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here, Peter, again, fighting for his idea of what Jesus ought to do, but it did not please the Lord. So Jesus rebukes Peter here, put that sword away, and he heals this servant's ears. We're even told the servant's name, Malchus. This is Luke twenty two fifty. 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Luke tells us this. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. I love that. And we see that Jesus tells Peter, listen, I don't need your help. I don't need your puny sword to help me. Matthew records this, Matthew 26, 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish By the sword, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus tells him that he doesn't need his help. Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels. So one legion is a thousand of Roman soldiers. So Jesus said, I can call, I don't need Roman soldiers. I can call angels from heaven And I could call 12 legions. That would be 72,000. Of course, that's just a representative number. He could call any number of angels. In other words, he doesn't need a mere human being to fight for him. They're not taking Jesus against his will. He's not fighting this. He's offering himself. So imagine with me the restraint that Jesus is expressing here. He could have easily called it off. No army large enough that man could muster that would take Jesus by force. Jesus is willing to go. Here's a reminder for us. God doesn't need your anger. God doesn't need your violence to accomplish his will. Here we live in cultural, really a tumultuous time in our culture, real battle in the culture. And this is informing us here how we don't act. Our move is not like Peter here. God doesn't need your anger. He doesn't need your violence. He doesn't need you to have a combative attitude in the culture. Yes, be engaged. Yes, be confident. Of course, be salt and light in this culture, but look at Jesus here. He's calm. He's resolute. His face is on the cross where he's going to go give his life for us. Our move is not like Peter's. We're not thrashing out at others with the weapons of the world. Our weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we keep our eyes on Jesus who will be crucified. We're pointing these who are presently enemies of Christ. We're pointing them to the Savior that they might become like us, former enemies of Christ, believers in Christ. In fact, let's take a moment here to contrast the way of Christ versus the way of many other world religions where many others in history have tried to advance their faith through violence, through armies, through conquest. Jesus says, no, that's not how we do it. You put away your sword. I'm going to a cross to atone for sin. In fact, we don't even like this verse, but this is what Jesus told his disciples earlier. In Luke ten three. listen to this. Jesus said to them, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So here's Jesus giving himself into the hands of evil men in order to die for our sins. See his love, see his restraint. See him holding back his great authority and power He could have stopped it. He could have destroyed everybody in his path there, but he allows himself to go. He's yielding to the plan. Even before the cross, do you see his great love for you? Now let's take on this next passage, and we'll do this fast without a lot of commentary, but I want you to hear with me how Jesus continues to give himself to this process even as the physical abuse starts against Christ. This is verses 12 and following, a lengthy passage here, so if you have a Bible open, follow along with me. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Just a couple of observations here. Did you notice that they bound Jesus? They tied his hands with some kind of rope or some kind of cord. And I want you to think with me that that could not possibly hold Jesus. In my quiet time lately and reading in the Old Covenant, I read recently where Samson was tied with ropes, and no matter what they put on him, full of the Holy Spirit, nothing could hold him. He could break loose. When the Philistines would come upon him, as long as he was full of the Holy Spirit, he could break free from anything. And here's Jesus, far greater than Samson, God in the flesh. There's nothing they could put on him. So listen, if there are ropes on the arms of Jesus, that's because Jesus is letting them stay there. He's not fighting this. He's not fleeing this. He's not afraid of this. He came for this to give himself. Jesus has unlimited power, and yet he's stepping toward this. Notice his restraint here. And then this one, this really really hits me, where Jesus endures the first blow that will be many directed at him. One person hits him, and we read about that guy there, slaps the face of Jesus. Jesus. That's amazing. And here Jesus models for us here, turning the other cheek there. But I've had a chance to think about that guy. I think, you know, it didn't ultimately go well for him. So yes, Jesus doesn't address him right now. Jesus didn't dissolve him in that moment like he could have. Jesus didn't call the 12 legions of angels to deal with all these people. He's letting this go because he's coming to a cross because he loves you and he's gonna die for you. But I thought about that man. Wouldn't it be horrible to be that man who slapped the face of Jesus? And you think you got away with it. You got the majority on your side, but then you die and you face God in judgment. How does that go? Now we can hope together that that man is among those who after the resurrection of Jesus, believed in Jesus, had remorse for that. I hope so for his eternal soul. Because otherwise this man on top of all of his other sins and on top of all of his unbelief, you slap the face of the alpha and the omega That that cannot go well for you. So listen, your unbelief, Your rejection of Christ will also be judged. If you're here today and you say, I'm not believing, and I seem to be getting away with it, God God is not addressing me. Listen, God is being patient with you, like he was patient with the rest of us, giving you another opportunity to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your unbelief that you might believe in Jesus. So let me ask you this way today. As we consider those coming to arrest Jesus and his disciples and how Jesus is acting here, which side are you on? Are you with those who are rejecting Jesus? Are you in league with those who are even striking Jesus here? Are you like one who's a part of that arresting party hating Jesus? Are you among those who have believed in him? If we say it simply this, are you for Jesus or are you against Jesus? Your heart, your life, your word sometimes will show you which one you are. You might be one who's hostile in open rejection against Jesus, or you might be one who's simply apathetic and indifferent. But it's the same rejection. You're part of those who are rejecting Christ. You're wanting Jesus out of your way so that you can have your sin, but it won't go well for you in that sin. You'll be judged for that sin. But here's the good news. Jesus did not come to earth to condemn you. He came on a mission to save you. This was all his idea. He knows all about your sin. You've forgotten a lot of your sins. He knows every one of them. But Jesus loved you. He stepped out of his heaven. He lived a perfect life for you. To go to this cross, he's he's dealing with the abuse of men. We're reading about it. But it was the plan of God to go to the cross, to have your sins credited to him, where he's going to die for them, to take the judgment you deserve. There's no love like that. He was raised on the third day to make it clear, this this sacrifice was accepted. He's conquered sin and death. And here's the promise of Scripture. If you believe in him, if you believe in him, you'll not perish, but have everlasting life. By implication, if you don't believe in him, you will perish. You'll have eternal death. Oh, but Jesus came that you would believe in him. Trust in him. Ask him to save you. Here's how you do that. Oh, Jesus, I see my sinfulness. I know I can't save myself. I used to think I could. I can't. I see it. I need you. If you left heaven to save me, that means I need a savior like you, and you're the only one. Jesus, save me. And take over my life. In the last service, we had five people baptized, adults who've recently come to faith in Christ. And we asked them, have you asked Jesus to be your savior alone? And each five said, yes. Is it your intention to follow Jesus the rest of your life? And all five of them affirmed, yes, I want to follow Jesus the rest of my life. That's your move as well, to trust in Jesus and to follow Jesus. One final word, when we were talking about this text in the office this week, Chip said, isn't it a wonderful contrast when you consider the disobedience of Adam in his garden with the obedience of Christ in this garden? Oh, that is a beautiful contrast. Reminder, Jesus came to undo what Adam caused there in that first garden. Through his disobedience and our disobedience, we needed a Savior. And Jesus came and obediently went to the cross to die for us, to offer us eternal life. Today, your move. Would you obediently trust in Jesus? Pray with me. What a wonderful savior you are, Lord. Nobody like you, we sang it earlier, worthy, holy. We think about your great love for us that you'd be willing to do this. We can't imagine restraining such power and allowing this to happen to us if we were there. But Lord, your love is greater. Your grace is greater. Your mercy is greater. Thank you that you did this. And Lord, I pray for men and women hearing this message that today they'd respond to your grace. They'd respond to your love by trusting in you. Lord, take away every excuse. Take away every distraction. And Lord, I pray that they would call on you today as Savior, as Lord. Lord, give them that gift, the same gift you've given to so many of us in this room. Lord, it's all for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.